0: Welcome to Leveraging Leadership, where we unpack the art of business leadership. I'm your host, Emily Sander, Chief of Staff turned Executive Leadership Coach. In this series, we dive into the role of Chief of Staff, exploring how it can be a game changer and pivotal player on your leadership team. You'll get a backstage pass and learn about the different aspects of the role and what it takes to excel in it. We'll hear from some incredible guests who have firsthand experience serving as Chief of Staff, or collaborating with one on their team. And don't forget, the chief of staff isn't just a title of person, it represents a leadership philosophy. Leveraging Leadership is all about finding your points of greatest influence and leveraging them to better serve those around you. Mark, thank you so much for being on the Leveraging Leadership podcast. I can already tell you it's gonna be a great conversation, but thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you, Emily, for inviting me.
0: Yes. So, first of all, I want to give people um, a bit of background because you have a little bit of a unique background and experience in your run up to the role of chief of staff. And I heard you described as a deal maker extraordinaire. And I think that goes back to your venture partner um, and investment partner days. So, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Oh, where would you hear that?
0: I have my sources.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um- you know, my, my I think my, my sort of my mantra is keep it simple. I think that when it comes to whether it's operations or business development or deal making, um, I think that keeping things simple, focusing on the goals, not getting sidetracked, sidetracked is the way to go. And when it comes to business deals, my view is is you want everybody to walk away satisfied and happy, not necessarily thrilled. But but no no good comes from one party walking away feeling good and the other party feeling bad. Meaning, if if the buyer walks away feeling bad, for whatever reason, it takes. I think it takes steam out of you know out of their system. If the seller walks away feeling bad, I think that when he or she is called on to to help the buyer down the road with a contact or an operational issue, I think that it. Puts them in a situation where where they don't want to help, and at the end of the day, I think that fair deals make for happy parties, and make for good relationships going forward. So, I would say that I don't know if I'm a deal maker extraordinaire. Um, sometimes the best deals that you do are the ones that you don't do. Right? Sometimes walking away from a deal or saying this is not for us or it's not for us right now or it's it's biting off too much you know more than we can chew. So, I think that you know the, the 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 handful of deals that I've been involved with uh, ended up being good deals for both parties, and the the many many deals that I've walked away from, or or somebody walked away from me, I, I think that that's that's also for the best.
0: It reminds me on a much smaller scale when I bought my very first car all by myself. One of my uncles was helping me through that. He said, Emily. You know, when you go in there and negotiate, uh, make sure you know what kind of shoes you have on. And I was like, "What do you like? What do you mean?" He's like, "Because you're going to have to get up and walk away, and that's that's sometimes part of the negotiation kind of swan dance you do." So I never forgot that. Oh yes, okay, I can walk away from this if I if I don't think it's for me. So you had deal maker deals going back and forth, and then I know you're an attorney by trade, and I also heard from a recruiter that you worked with that uh, you had to get talked into some of the the venture partner jobs you got into. So what, what made you get into that line of work? I'm just interested in kind of how you, how you got attracted to that. It, it,
1: it, I kind of had no choice. When I was practicing law, you know, when you, there's something that you think you want to be, and you want to do, and then a year or two in, you kind of like, not so much. So you need to move on. And the way I ended up getting into sort of the venture world was in, in 2009. Well, we, we moved to Israel. My family moved to Israel. Before that, we you know I had worked for a, a large telecom company. And that was where I kind of cut my teeth on the M&A side. And at the same time, we also built a couple of startups. We incubated a couple of startups internally. And we ended up selling one of them. So I had this, you know, the taste of the M&A world, the taste of the... Sort of startup world, um, not so much the VC world. And then, in in 2007, I became the CEO of a kind of a late stage struggling startup, and I had to raise some money. And that was really my first introduction to the VC world. And not only the VC world, but the VC world in Israel. And eventually, I moved to Israel in 2009, and was recruited by a venture capital fund to run one of their portfolio companies. So that gave me you know, greater entree into into the VC world, you know, the, the one thing I never was was that I was never that, you know, that founder. I've been the guy who comes in and, and helps the founder, replaces the founder, provides a term that you and I have used in, in our conversations is adult supervision. Uh, but that's really what I ended up kind of becoming in, in a couple of different roles. And after the company that I was recruited to run, uh, we, we raised a lot of money we signed a couple of big contracts, and then the industry that we were in had a seismic shift, and we had no choice but to close the business, and at that point, I had to find something to do. And I realized that as a, you know, primarily English speaker, I my mean, Hebrew is okay, but not really business Hebrew, and wanting to kind of live in Israel on an American salary, I wasn't finding opportunities. So I got into sort of the deal business and I started helping Israeli companies, startups, founders to raise capital, to do business development, helped coach some founders before their roadshows, helped them put together the materials. And that gave me a lot of access to pretty much the entire uh, VC ecosystem. Now, you know, this is probably 10, 12 years ago. It's different today, but it was really interesting. And then at some point... So most of my income was 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 really success fee based, and at some point I needed to shift to a more stable environment. So I kind of put on my consulting hat, and I took on two very stable consulting gigs that were in parallel. One was as the interim CEO of a mobile app development company, kept me you know my fingers in the kind of Israeli high tech startup ecosystem. All of our clients were startups. Uh, We had to raise some money. Very often, we would exchange development work in exchange for equity interests in some of the the companies that we were working for slash investing in. More than investing cash, we were were investing sweat equity. And I also became the uh, venture partner, the local venture partner for a Chinese investment group. So so again, I I continued to meet with venture funds because they were looking for co-investors or we would have an investment that we were going to try to find Uh, co-investors for, and I was running around the entire Israeli startup ecosystem looking for companies that that, that suited these guys' requirements. So that's kind of how that happened. And I ended up, I'd say, cutting my teeth in a lot of different places, both as an investor, as a co-investor, as a deal guy, business development, looking for partners, helping uh, with marketing. And uh, it was kind of interesting.
0: And from all that, how did you make your way back to the states and into the chief of staff role?
1: Good, good question. So I ended up coming back to the U.S. for family reasons. I uh, actually tried to do this reverse commute between New York and Israel for a few years, and it's it's quite no weary. Yes, yeah, so you know when, when you live in Israel and you come to New York to work twice a week on a you know, twice a month on the U.S. salary, it's great, okay. but you're living in Israel, working in Israel, coming to New York, uh, it, it's not quite as, uh, it's not quite as interesting. So How long is that flight? It's, it's about 12 hours. And if you try to be cheap, you're, you know, you're flying <laughs> through France or Moscow or something, uh, it's longer. Um, It's—it's—it's it, it, There's a lot of wear and tear, but, uh, you know, you get used to it. You start seeing the same people over and over again. Uh, but, you know, I kind of liked that, I liked being in a role where you got to do a lot of different things. And, you know, in big companies, the CEO, you know, the COO does COO stuff. The head of marketing does the head of marketing stuff. And everybody kind of has their role. And I liked having different roles. So when I got back to New York on a full-time basis, I needed to find a role that kind of suited my sort of requirement, but... Would keep me on my toes and get me out of bed in the morning. And today I'm doing X, and tomorrow I'm doing Y, and maybe this afternoon I'm going to do something different. And uh, sort of that's it feeds my ADD. So um, I just started, you know, looking for opportunities where I could add value in different ways. And it, it has its pluses and its, and its minuses, right? Sometimes, you know, as a chief of staff, you're not really making the decisions. So sometimes you find that you're doing a lot of coaching you're you're getting your hands dirty in, in a lot of different areas and then sometimes kind of one thing that you do you if you do it too well so you don't you no longer need to be involved in that and then you get put into something else so I guess depending on the company depending on who you're working for depending on uh your own capabilities I think the role can shape out very differently and it and it also it, it morphs it it's you know, ebbs and it flows, ebbs and flows.
0: And your company that you're chief of staff for is relatively small. It was kind of maybe not a nascent startup, but it was relatively young, and you know, it had done well. It had done proof of concept and had meet, met all its growth targets and so forth. So, when you came in, what was your, at least at the time, what was your expectation for the mandate or the scope of work of that chief of staff role?
1: It's interestingly, I wasn't hired to be the chief of staff. We, we kind of talked about it. They weren't really looking for a chief of staff. So, so to take a step back, so I, I joined a company called Ranger Consulting Group. It's a Brooklyn-based, Brooklyn, New York-based uh, tax consulting firm, uh, heavily focused on on the ERC, which the, the Employee Retention Credit, which uh, has been in the press a lot, for, for better or for worse. But I would say, without going too much into detail on the ERC... I kind of look at the ERC industry as sort of like the personal injury law industry. Everybody thinks of PI lawyers as ambulance chasers. At the end of the day, there might be a few bad apples that kind of ruin their reputation for the industry, but a lot of personal injury lawyers are upstanding lawyers. They're good lawyers. They, they're they trying to find a fair resolution to, uh, to to an issue that happened. And I think that in the in the ERC world, uh, there were a lot of people who tried to take advantage of the COVID era legislation, of the fact that there were businesses that were struggling. There were small right. business owners who were struggling, and they were kind of showing them, you know, a rainbow and a pot of gold at the end of it without showing them that if if they're not doing it the right way, that pot of gold disappears, and, and then other bad stuff happens along the way. So... One of the things that that we sort of pride ourselves on is is being uh, a really upstanding firm. Uh, we don't do anything that we're not supposed to do. We don't do anything that you know that our clients ask us to do that uh, we don't feel comfortable doing. And we only, meaning that we, we we represent our clients as as if we were doing it for ourselves. So putting that aside, the, the company got off to a really fast start, and I actually joined them uh, in June. With the focus on business development, in in terms of kind of finding finding new opportunities w- within the ERC landscape, uh, in, in, in an industry that's going to sunset in, in the next year and a half, so we wanted to try to leverage the the rules to help as many companies as we as we can. And when I got here, I think we had had discussions during kind of the interview process that the company was still young and needed certain things to, to happen to to position themselves for growth, especially post-ERC. So a few weeks after I got here, a lot of things came to a head where they said, you know, why don't you be chief of staff? Uh, which is sort of like, in some ways, COO, in some ways, a bunch of other roles. But, but it was really supporting the two young founders who had done a, a remarkable job of building the business but the infrastructure uh, as happened in a lot of companies needed some, you know, some, some, some strengthening and some support. So for the next few months, they focused very heavily on implementing best practices, on realigning business units and putting the right people in the right roles and kind of doing it as the proxy for, for Josh and Pat, the, uh, the two founders. Uh, until we got to the point where the business was was really structured very, very soundly.
0: And in terms of that kind of stability factor, you mentioned the adult supervision before, but that stability, and I've been there, I've done that. I know how you set this team up. I know how you connect these dots. Um, Whereas, you know, you get a first-time founder, anyone who just hasn't done it before, they just don't know what it's supposed to look like. So, whether it was a chief of staff role coming in, or it kind of turned turned into that very quickly, how much of a factor was bringing that stability and know how to the organization for you?
1: Uh, I think it was important. Meaning, I, I don't think that it would have been the type of place that I'd want to be if we couldn't put some structure behind it. And I, I think that that's a trick that, that startups in general—you know—we're we're not really. A traditional startup in the sense that we're not developing some crazy technology. That's going to change the world. We use technology. We've developed technology that is very useful within our industry. Um, and it's very useful for helping small businesses to be able to leverage opportunities for, for tax credits and, and other relief that, that they may be entitled to, but we're not you know, inventing a submarine that's <laughs> going to do crazy things. Right. So, I think that it's important in general for for small businesses to remain flexible, to be entrepreneurial, uh, to to not lose their, you know, their mojo, but to be able to function and operate in a way that their employees are happy, that the employees come to work, Uh, knowing where they stand, uh, knowing what to look forward to. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that... Uh, if you talk to employees in general of, of companies of all sizes, the they they take the job for the salary. If somebody's looking to make eighty thousand dollars, and they get an offer of eighty thousand dollars or seventy eight or eighty two, so they, they take the job because the, the salary requirements are met. But they keep they stay in the job because they like the people mm. they're working with, they, they like what they're doing, they they feel comfortable, and because they have a career path. If if they know, you know, as I'm going to make more money as I grow, but not only am I going to make more money, I'm going to have more responsibilities. I'm be able to do this, I'm be able to do something else. It, it might be a career, path within the company. It might be a stepping stone to something else. But I think that a very big part of a young company maturing is remembering that the employees uh, really drive the business, and a happy employee makes a huge difference in terms of output. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I think a lot of just business people, not just founders, but will kind of do it backwards where they'll do their spreadsheet and it'll all make sense with formulas and everything. And then they'll try to jam that into the business. Whereas if you support the people and um, you you give them the right investment in terms of training and processes and all those things, the end result of that will naturally be um a positive, uh, you know, healthy bottom line. But a lot of people do it, just like they try to kludge this thing together and jam it down. The- I
1: think you have to do you have to take two approaches. You know, there's always a top-down approach. If you're raising capital from investors, right, you have to start with, you know, what's my ROI? What's my business going to look like? So investors will want to invest in me. You also have to take a bottom-up approach, which is how am I actually going to build a business? And get there. So if you start here and you start here, and then you kind of, as you kind of get somewhere towards the middle, if it's working, if the, if 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 that's kind of coming together, so you have a business model. If you're really struggling to fit this into this or to fit this into that, so I think you have a big you have a big problem at your hands.
0: Yeah, and I think it also goes across the company, too, where I've been at so many companies where right hand doesn't know what left hand is doing and no way do they communicate on any sort of regular basis. We actually use, I don't know if you're familiar with the balance scorecard, um, basically where you incorporate the traditional financial metrics, but you also take into account things like internal processes and growth and learning and really... Segmenting out your your target markets in terms of customers and customer profile, and that all informs the metrics that everyone is is checking in on um, on a regular basis. So that helps, uh, that helps kind of bring all of those things together where you're you're getting the top down, you're getting the bottom up, and you're getting the side to side, so to speak.
1: We, we put together a presentation that, that every person on the leadership team is responsible for one slide that kind of updates wins. Wins are big losses for the week, like highlights of the week, highlights of lowlights. Then sort of, you know, an active running list of priorities. Um, then we have our KPIs, whether it's month to date, quarter to date, year to date, uh, whatever we're focused on in that period of time. Uh, objectives and goals for the following week. And then kind of like a casual box where uh, whether it's for ideas or... Uh, you know, thinking out of the box. And and everybody's responsible for, for delivering that to me by Wednesday evening. Uh, I put it together. I try to get it out Wednesday night, so first thing Thursday. And everybody's just to come to the meeting having reviewed it so that we don't have to go through presentations. It says, oh, I closed two deals this week. I lost this deal. Everybody knows already. So if it took, it, I mean, every, we all still sort of slip back into, like, making a presentation when it's our turn to talk. But to the most part, if somebody gets it back on track and says, "Guys, you know, we read this already. Let's just talk about why." So it gives us it's kind of an automatic strategy session, right? People have the opportunity to say, you know, to, to ask hard questions. You know, you can ask the marketing person, "Why, why did this not go go right?" But then the idea is not to you know call people to the you know to pull people into the fire. The idea is to help people out of the fire, right? You're having a problem. How do we get these you know five or six smart community leaders? to 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 get involved in other areas of the business and to lend a hand as, as needed I, I think that that is you know the, the role that I see especially in young companies with chief of staff doing it's it's just bringing that experience that knowledge and know-how um using all of the sets of experiences that you've had in you know in twenty or thirty years and, and helping people who have three or four or eight years of experience to to run their businesses and to focus on the things that they're really good at.
0: And I so agree because I think a chief of staff or any leader who, number one, creates a mechanism for all this information to be collected and reviewed. But also, as you mentioned, it's helping people get out of the fire. I love that sentiment because a lot of times it's gotcha or, hey, you have to talk about how you fail in front of everyone. And that's going to be a pressure point to make you do better. Um, yes, yeah, sometimes, but I've, I've been in both, <laughs> both cultures. And, and I, by the both. way, so, sometimes
1: there's no answer, right? Sometimes somebody doesn't do something that they're supposed to do and you can banish them over, why don't you do it? Why don't you do it? And sometimes the answer is as simple as I forgot or I was distracted yeah. and, and that's okay. It's not okay if it happens a lot, yeah. but it's okay. It's, it's much better to say, I forgot I was distracted. Something came up, and, you know, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you my kid was sick and it won't happen again. And then I think that you build trust when, when when the reaction to that is, okay, I get it. It happens. You know, I, I make the same mistake. And then it builds, it builds trust between the employee and the employer, let's say, between the boss and the subordinate. And I think it also builds trust the other way when, when, when it doesn't happen again. And I think that the idea is also that when you have people who are learning to work together, uh, also the ability, you know, for somebody to to come in and say, hey, my job is to help all of you. My job is to make sure that you guys are all in sync, working together. You know, the, the, it's kind of like almost the, the you know the head coach on a football team, where you have your defensive coordinator, you know, like he really does the game planning, and the offensive coordinator does the game planning. And at the end of the day, you have all these other you know specialist coaches. At the end of the day, it, it, it all boils down to the head coach, and I kind of see myself as, in some ways, the head coach, who's and I work for the general managers. And helping the general managers make the decisions to, you know, what trades to make. How how do we build this team? What do we want to focus on? You know, the coaches are, the coach is really in the trenches and and the general manager is kind of up in the, up in the booth. And we're also working really hard, giving advice, taking advice. But uh, I think that somebody has to pull all those, you know, specialists together.
0: I love football. I could go off on so many tangents with regard to like some head coaches call the plays because they were have an offensive coordinator background and some, you know, sit in the booth and like look at the whole field and some are on the sidelines. So, yeah, it's uh, it's setting up a good team, right? To have those specialties and then, you know, checking in with people and making sure they have what they need, but then letting them letting them do what they're good at. Um, So, yeah. And I also love your mention of not berating someone. When they didn't get something done, so yes, don't don't not get it done over and over and over again. But I remember I had mm-hmm. someone on my team, and they were like, fl- I like asked them about, you know, where where are we on this project? And they got flustered, like, and they started stuttering. I was like, you know, Dan, like it's like if it didn't get done, then that's fine. And and he didn't realize that was an option. Like it just I didn't get to it. Okay, no problem. I had X, Y, and Z come up impromptu stuff, and it's like no problem. Like, we'll hit it next week. Got it next know you know
1: so. you what know, life life happens all the time and, and so you know and sometimes people forget to tell somebody that life is happening
0: and sometimes it's just like things came up where I have like things came up unexpectedly in business right that happens all the time and also sometimes I'm over uh you know over aggressive with how much I think I can get done like I can get those 12 things done and you get like two done. So that happened. I
1: also happen to be a big believer in in managing people to the way they want to be managed, the way they need to be managed and not the way you manage. So, you know, I'm not saying that you have to, you know, take like a two-hour test and figure out exactly what type of personality you are. But but I think it's important for leaders to quickly identify some people want, some people need to be pushed and some people need empathy and some people need rah-rah and some people need to be left alone. And, and you don't always know what's going on behind the scenes. Is the kid sick? Is the family member sick? Is there stuff going on? And I think that in order to get the best out of people, uh, and this is, really comes through experience, right? So I think young managers sometimes believe like, this is my management style. Okay. You know, yes, my managers, if I had to, you know, if I had to say what my management style is unrelated to the people who work right? me, my, my management style is give people the tools to do their jobs, uh, run interference, and, you know, hopefully they'll perform. But that's when you start getting a little bit more granular. Um, I think that, you know, if, if you, if you worked for me and, and you had, uh, you know, kids at home, right. And I would have to, I think it's important. To to recognize that sometimes you have to find a balance, and I think that if if, if somebody likes, wants to be talked to, wants you know wants empathy, uh, versus somebody who for whatever reason is really good at what they do, but they they need to be pushed, and I think it's really important to, uh, to 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 manage people and to coach people in a way that suits them, not in a way that suits you, the manager.
0: Yeah, I think as you. Move up, so to speak, in your different leadership roles, you have to flex to other people's work styles. So when you're first starting out, it's like me, 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 everyone, first of all, making the assumption that everyone works like me and communicates like I do, which is which is false. but also people have to conform to me. It's like, hey, you have to be adaptable and flexible and know what your team members are going to respond to. so that's a that's a good point. How did you or how do you work with other um Team members on the executive team, I know, I think you mentioned, you know, the founders have to travel a lot. They're out of the office for different reasons. And sometimes you're there trying to put pieces together um, in their absence.
1: Mm-hmm. It would stay bad. To influence people, you have to work with them. Again, people do. You know, everybody has their own style. My style is I'm very happy to be behind the scenes. I don't need to be the flashy guy. I don't need the credit. I'd be very happy if, you know, I was behind the scenes if somebody was performing and then just called me and said, hey, thanks, you know, thanks for the tip, thanks for the advice. But I think, I think that there are ways to, to influence people by just being in it with them. You know, you roll up your sleeves. There, there are people who, you know, may report two layers below, you know, an, an executive, but if you kind of walk around the office and, just develop relationships with people and let people know that your door is open and they can always come to you for advice. And I, I think that that's helpful in terms of building trust. And then when you come with a good idea, every once in a while you come with a good idea or someone will come in and say, Hey, can I bounce this off of you? I have this legal issue or I have you know this issue. What, what, what do you think you should do? And we could sit and schmooze and, you know, rack our brains and, and let's try some solutions. And then let's also then figure out like what, you know, don't leave yet because now we have some solutions. Let's talk through what what might happen if we go ahead with one, two, three. Uh, what are some of the potential fallouts repercussions, benefits? What are the knock-on effects going to be? And I think that that uh, also requires planning.
0: How long does that normally take? Because I can think of people who are immediately like, oh, you're here to help me. Let me partner with you on a whole bunch of stuff. And I remember, you know, a year plus. It took people, and I remember this one person who I knew that I had made a connection when they came and they basic and they confided in me. I was like, "Oh my gosh, what's happening right here?" Oh, they're they're telling me something vulnerable and confiding in me, and that's the point. I knew, okay, we have a right. deeper connection. But that took a while. So, just curious, what your experience? You
1: know, it's sort of like the old question: How long is a piece of string? Um, <laughs> It, it depends I, I think you know it's it's almost like dating in a certain sense right yeah. I have friends who got engaged you know after eleven days and I have friends who you know have to date somebody for four years so I think that it's it, it takes two to the tango so if, if you come off as a trustworthy person and you have somebody who is trusting, so it might take less time if you have everybody has their baggage right everybody has their own set of experiences yeah. so even if it's a if it's a new employee who's who's here for the first time. Working for the first time, but like they had a bad experience in college. They had a bad experience with a man, they had a bad experience with a guy in a white shirt. Um, we have a very uh, our population is, is very mixed in, in terms of race, religion, gender, uh, you know, all sorts of different types of people, and I think that tolerance, you know, rules the day. On the other hand, and not making a political statement, but we also, it's a very Jewish company. So we're uh, very pro-Israel, and we're very sensitive today to to what's going on in Israel. And we didn't really ask permission to, you know, it's, it's the, the two guys on the company they didn't ask permission. I think they were sensitive to it. We hung up Israeli flags, and I don't think there's anybody here who was uncomfortable, but I do believe if somebody was unco- would be uncomfortable, they would be able to come and talk it out. You know, nobody... Yeah. Uh, n- nobody here is unwilling to explain a position or to make a change to make sure that everybody here is comfortable. And again, it, it comes from, there's always that fine line between, you know, cool and creepy uh, when, it comes to, when it comes to office relationships. Um, you know, I personally, uh, I'm not a hugger, but, you know, if somebody comes to another office, uh, you know, a big smile, let's have lunch. Uh, you have to be, you know, these days you have to be very careful. Can you can you yeah. offer to somebody back to their hotel? just because you have a car and they don't, how are they going to take it? So you have to be very careful and who you're talking to. And but we've definitely, you know, we've had team dinners out. We've had uh, events in the office where, you know, some people will say, hey, the out is open and anyone wants to go there. People kind of tend to gravitate towards the people that they want to hang out with. But when it comes down to work, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of uh, respect between between the people.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think that, you know, the, the management team stands up for people who, In a handful of cases I could think of where somebody was disrespectful to somebody else, the management team came in very quickly to the
0: defense
1: or protection of of the person who felt that they were disrespected.
0: Good. Yeah. Well, (laughs) they mentioned balance between cool and creepy. In business yeah. and in dating, good advice for both both scenarios. Um, so what is... What, in, in,
1: in every scenario.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so as we wrap, wrap down here, what are some pieces of advice you would give to a chief of staff or an executive who is looking to bring on a chief of staff into their company?
1: Let's start with the second one first. If I think that somebody who's looking to bring on a chief of staff has to be ready to have one they have to be ready to give up certain things a chief of staff is is not a slave or a servant or a you know person who's hired to for to, to buy concert tickets for the guy's wife or book tickets you know, to florida for the kids um in some cases that may be part of the job description but when you're talking about a really professional chief of staff i think that the job description has to be clear but everybody has to be flexible because you know stuff is going to come up just like as a ceo stuff comes up all the time it didn't expect. so that trickles down to your chief of staff but i think that you have to be ready to have somebody act as your proxy if you're not ready to have somebody act as your proxy then it's uh, it's a recipe for a disaster if somebody comes in and thinks that they're going to be doing all this ceo stuff but you don't get the support because guy or woman doesn't know how to do it, isn't ready for it. So that's a challenge. That's a challenge. Uh, from the perspective of the the chief of staff, him or herself, flexibility, it, at the end of the day, it's it's don't take advantage. It's it's still the CEO and COOs, whoever you're the chief of staff to, it's still your boss's company, you're representing them. Yeah. And you need to be damn sure that you're actually representing their interests. If they go away and you're making a decision on something, you better be really sure that the decision that you're making is the same decision that they would have made. You might be wrong, but if if, you're, if, if your boss is comfortable that you gave it thought, you put yourself in my shoes, and you may have made the wrong call, but at least you made the call from the perspective of really thinking of, is this what I would have done in this situation? So I think that that's salvageable. But you have to be ready to be flexible. Sometimes the CEOs, and everybody can be fickle. Right? But, you know, sometimes a guy might wake up today and say, I really, man, you know, you did a good job on, on this, now I'll do something else. Well, I, you don't want me to do that. Well, if you yeah. weren't here, I would have to do it. I'm the CEO, so I'm asking you to do it. So you have to be prepared to, to wear a lot of hats.
0: And I think that point is so well taken because there are many times when I could push my agenda or slide something in there where I position it just so, or I leave out a couple words that, you know, have certain connotations, but it was important for me to be representing my principle accurately. So that's right. a great, that's a great point. The last question I have for you here is, I know that you're involved with a whole bunch of, uh, you mentor a lot for a number of different places. So I was wondering if you could just share, you know, whether it's those, those specific places that you mentor for or why that's so important to you.
1: So, at different stages of my career, or so over the last few years, I've been involved in a couple of different startups and incubators. Uh, I've been involved with student organizations or career centers of universities where to help students with their resumes and preparing for interviews and things like that. I, I've run a couple of summer internship programs. So I, I wouldn't say it's it's purely altruistic. And when you run a summer internship program, uh, I think that the, the goal is the, the goal number one is for the student to have a Productive summer to learn to, to 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 become more professional, to get a sense for what they would like their career to look like. But I think there's an expectation that they're going to perform. I think that there's an expectation you're bringing on interns who you've interviewed and uh, you know, come highly recommended, and you've gone through a whole process. They are also supposed to deliver something, and I think that that's important. I think that when it comes to you know working with startups, again, I, I like working with startups. I like you know exercising that part of my brain where we could talk about strategy and we could talk about you know, how, how you to pitch this to investors and what's the product market fit and things like that uh, but it's also not purely altruistic in the sense that who knows maybe one of those companies will want to hire me or it, you know, it allows me to continue to you know to build my CV into and, and to get uh, introductions within whatever ecosystem they're, they're in I would say that the the one that's really Altruistic is is working with students on you know their resume and things like that, yeah. and and again yeah. I, I think that that's it's it's fun. I think it's a good thing to do. I think that my pet peeve is somebody who comes to interview unprepared. Mm, yeah. So if I can help some other you know executive from having to meet with a student or an interviewee who comes unprepared, uh, I think like I've done something uh, good for them and and for the student. Yes. So it's a little bit of, of giving back for sure paying it for things like that.
0: Sounds great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And Mark, thank you so much again for being on. It was was great to have you. Great great to see you.
1: Thanks for the great questions.
0: Yeah, for sure. No problem. Thanks, my friend.
1: All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Sharing is caring. Send a link to this show to someone you think would enjoy it and tag Emily on LinkedIn. She'll give you a shout out on the next episode as a thank you for helping get the word out.